The savior complex is a horrible obsession where instead of getting to know someone and seeing if there's harmony and potential for you as friends or as partners, you immediately imagine a version of them that is different than what they are. And then you set about trying to make them into the imaginary person that you have in mind. Hey, it's Anna here, just taking a little pause to talk about getting help when you're having a rough time. There are a lot of things you can try, and one of them is online therapy through BetterHelp. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible, and those are very good things, because finding a therapist can be really hard. BetterHelp makes it easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist who meets your criteria. And when you click the special link that I'm going to give you, it not only helps this podcast, but it gets you 10% off your first month of therapy. So you can connect with a therapist, see what happens, and if anything feels like it's not a fit, which is common in therapy, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. No stress about insurance or who's in your network or anything like that. So if you're struggling and you need to talk to a human, try BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-C-F. C-C-F stands for Crappy Childhood Fairy. That's BetterHelp.com slash C-C-F. There's also a link in the episode description if you need it. That might be easier. Thanks for sponsoring us, BetterHelp. Now, back to the show. Now, you might call this helping them or healing them. And believe me, this is almost always the expression of a trauma wound. But really what's going on, I don't think you're going to like this. It's manipulation and control. And it's not really about helping them with something they require. It's about helping you to relieve an anxious emptiness inside. And in the end, it will take a toll on both of you, the person who thinks they're a savior and the person who is getting saved, right? So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Sersha. And she writes, Dear Anna, I grew up with a dysfunctional family and my parents were in violent conflict. My father had left the house to be with a woman he loved and my mother made attempts more than once on her own life. Okay, wow. So this letter has some heaviness up in the front. I've got the fairy pencil. I'm gonna be circling things I wanna come back to on a second reading, but let's go through Sersha's letter and see what's going on. She says, I grew up trying to keep her alive and trying to bring my father back home. They reconciled four years ago. What? And they've given me endless empathy and healing since. Double what? Really? That's amazing. Those two things don't often happen. But it sounds terrible. I recognize my limerent patterns, thanks to you, but it's my uncontrollable savior complex that truly disturbs me. I've had an intensely obsessive limerent pattern in romantic relationships throughout my life. She says, I wasted years of my life after an unavailable ex, and currently I feel myself slipping into limerence over a situationship. That is something like a friends with benefit thing, just in case any of you don't know the word, who seems to have cheated. Well, hold on, it's not really possible in a situationship, because that's the deal. He, he lied to me throughout and left me for the other woman. Okay. Both of these guys were survivors of abuse. So the past one and the current one. Okay. The second one didn't want to be alive anymore, suffering from PTSD and going through a parental divorce. 
I immediately saw myself in him and rushed to save him, not seeing the disgusting, dehumanizing impulse that's hidden under this savior complex of mine. Huh, disgusting and dehumanizing might be kind of strong. Okay. I feel attracted to the wounded pups, she says, and I'm ready to empty myself out to them. The emptiness occurs to me only when they reject me. Until then, I'm attracted to their brokenness, and healing them brings me palpable joy. So she puts quotes on brokenness and healing. So she, she understands that it's not realistic, but here we go. I don't romantically like anyone who isn't dysfunctional and doesn't need me to be a caregiver. Each time, it also feels like I won't ever find someone who could move me like the person in question does. Okay, so feeling moved. Mm -hmm. I never could be a caregiver to anyone at my home. I don't know why, I just couldn't do it. I felt anger when my mother would repeatedly fall sick as it made me feel helpless. And now these wires are crossed in my body. Well, kind of. You know, lately I just always want to point out there's actually no wires in our bodies, but I know what you mean. You have confused um, impulses. You see one thing and you do, you do something that's like discordant with that. I hear you. Okay. I feel like a terrible narcissist, though I've never wanted to hurt anybody and sometimes have been helplessly sincere and selfless. I don't think I know how to not be forgiving. I was emotionally abusive to my ex-partner and lived in guilt ever since. I apologized and tried to win him back, but he ended up emotionally abusing me this time, and I took it because I deserved it. With my latest situationship, I thought I got a do-over. I showered motherly affection on him. It wasn't a do-over, but yet another lesson that, that laid bare my pattern more clearly than ever before. I feel myself slipping into limerence once again, my mind latching on to manufactured hope. It's a good insight. You have a good insight. I loathe myself for denying him his humanity and making him into a vessel for my misguided notion of love. Oh, that's a very frothy language for the situation. And self-loathing is over the top, so we'll come back to that. I've also suffered from depression and anxiety, also self-diagnosed, which I think is fair. Depression and anxiety, you kind of know, right? Um, but what disturbs me the most is this arousal I feel upon meeting someone damaged. I don't just want to swoop in as their guardian angel. Sometimes I also want to disturbingly break them open to see their real self. Though I know that the trauma-driven self is perhaps the most unreal of them all. I want to stop feeling compassion for him. But even after his betrayal, emotional manipulation and rejection, it's only myself I loathe. Loathing, loathing, okay. His mistakes, I have forgiven already. It's mine, I cannot get past. Okay, that's just called shame. It's shame, we have it. All right, we'll come back to that. Shame, I'm going to write that in here to come back to. I can't forgive that I deliberately created drama with him because I thrive on that, where there needed to be none, and so prematurely. I fear I triggered him that way, and he tried to alleviate the panic, and hence subconsciously chose her. Well, okay. This is the guy who ended up leaving you for another woman, but it was a situationship by your own definition, which means no strings. So, well, you know, yeah, it sounds like a mismatch of expectations there. His message, though, was that he chose her because he just liked her more. Okay, sounds right. But my brain just won't stop solving it like a deep murder mystery. Okay, that's denial. Also, just going to point out, you're actually not emotionally available. 
From your channel, I know that it's myself I must heal. My impulse to heal others is perhaps nothing more than an impulse to control. Though it's also true that I had heightened sensitivity and ever since I was a child, I would shed actual tears for cut down trees. Mm -hmm. Other kids living in poverty or even an old chair being discarded. You know what? I know exactly what you mean. I have that too. I had that as a kid. I used to get very uh, teary looking at my my father who, when he was divorced and living in a tiny little studio apartment, his laundered shirts with the crisp collars folded and stacked inside of a drawer in his dresser. I just couldn't stop crying. I know what you mean. It's beautiful that we're so tender, but it means something. There's a great grief there. Sometimes I get so consumed in other people's emotions and thoughts that I forget all about myself. I've felt a physical pain since the end of this situationship and it has debilitated me. Okay, physical pain, debilitating. My question, how do I stop my savior complex? Is there a predatory instinct under the guise of this constant need to heal? Am I looking for vulnerable people like an emotional vulture? I know that I do care about them. I'm able to be loyal and loving, but I don't know if it's only so I can do something for them that won't let them abandon me. Bingo, bingo, right there. Okay, that's what I think. Okay. How do I know if any of my feelings of love are real at all? How can I close the fantasy conduit that my mind is desperate to keep open between me and my ex-situationship? How do I get out of his head and stay in my own? I had gotten so used to imagining myself from his point of view that now even when I watch your videos, I slip into feeling his pain rather than my own. This last thing you said, by the way, you're not in anybody's pain and you're not in their heads. You're in your own. You're just in... You're just imagining what other people feel and you are abandoning yourself, but you still don't know the other person. I'm just going to tell you that right now because I'm thinking it very strongly about the delusion of the savior complex where you think, you know, who they are. You think, you know, you know, even like early in a relationship, right? And you think, you know, what they need and you think um, you, you have this, you alone, not them, but you know what they're capable of and that it's your job to make them become that. There's good news and bad news, or there's kind of like gentle stuff and hard stuff. And I guess I'll tell you the hardest thing to hear up front, which is this is a form of grandiosity. It's, it's manipulation and control. And you kind of figured that. I think, you know, you, you're attacking yourself way too hard here. You don't need to do that. For the rest of this letter, I'm going to show you how you don't need to do that. You have CPTSD. And so everything you're doing, it's a natural survival strategy that you learned and you just haven't yet unlearned it. And right now you're in this like pivotal, you know, fulcrum where the teeter-totter is just about to uh, go to the other side where you're you're going to get off the teeter-totter and be free because you're now seeing it's like, wait a minute, this is not, there's something wrong with my perception here. I'm not seeing this right. So first of all, can I just say, if somebody needs fixing, they're not a good person to get into a relationship with. If you think that they uh, are not acceptable as they are, don't date them. Date only people you find to be acceptable. And if you need a little time, which we do, we need time to find out who is this person, is who they are harmonious with who I am? Am I okay with who they are? Do I accept them? Like you don't have to accept everybody, but early in a relationship, if you don't accept them, then fixing them is not a realistic path forward. And that's the thing. You had zeroed in early that this was about abandonment. And I do think I agree with you. That's my opinion. 
is that you attach to people and you didn't mention this, but I'm just going to tell you what the magic ingredient here that's trapping you every time like a fly on flypaper is sex. Sex bonds you to somebody before you know them, I'm assuming, you don't know them when that happens, and you don't actually like them, and you feel that they need to change. That's an unfortunate, wounded way of going through the world on your part, but also something to consider is how it affects other people is to get together with them. And basically, when you believe that they need to be different than they are, you are criticizing them, and that's not fair. People don't need to be criticized and they're, ideally you want to get into a relationship that's about equals who enjoy each other, who kind of lift each other to a slightly better level of themselves, both parties, right? Who support each other, who are friends, it's mutual. So this one-sided relationship, I can see how you got it. And this idea that, you know, we could psychologize all day and um, I bet if you've been to therapy, you, ha you have talked about this a lot, about the helplessness you felt as a kid when your mom, you kept worrying she was going to die, and you were just a little kid and you didn't know how to stop it, and everything was terrible. Everything was out of control. You poor thing. And you got stuck like that. And how, how could a person not get stuck like that when you're a kid and everybody's lying about what's happening? You know, nobody's talking to you for real about it. You're not assisted to interpret reality. As a mom with young adult kids, just raising those kids, and I was raised in a manner somewhat like yours, it's really important to tell kids the truth of what's going on. There are many things you don't tell kids, like their, their capacity to deal with trauma and tragedy is not there. So, but, but you don't lie to them. It's like, I'm really sad right now. Someone has died, you know, now they're in heaven. And um, I'm really, really sad. So you don't just go, nothing happened. I'm not sad. Everything's great. What's the matter with you? Because my kids were sensing that. So I remember when some, someone close to us died and my kid who was six at the time never cried about it. And the one who was three just kind of didn't understand what was going on. But the second night after the person died, I was putting him into bed and he all of a sudden, he just started sobbing. But it was this weird kind of sobbing, like there were tears and there was noise, but there was this strange frozenness to his face. He was in a frozen kind of cry about the whole thing. And I just sat with him and I cried too. I'm like, yeah, it's sad. It's so sad. And just, you know, let him have the truth of his feelings that he was sad. So with the crazy stuff going on in your home and mine when I was little, you don't get that opportunity to get stuff validated. And so it's really easy to come up with a child's idea of what's needed. I know. I'll figure out how to save people. I'll be able to do it and then the terrible thing won't happen and I won't lose my mom and I won't get taken away from her. And then I can, and then that thinking, that skill that you developed, it just stays on. And now it's not a survival strategy, it's, it undermines you. So that's all it is. There's no reason to hate yourself. You might as well give yourself a big hug because you went through a lot and this would be a normal adaptation for a person who went through what you went through. But I agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's ruining your relationships. And so you are in just a perfect spot to start working on that, to try to stay in reality. Now, I tell everybody who needs to heal their relationship life, it's so important. If you've taken my dating course for people with childhood PTSD, you know this. I start everybody like, what do you actually want? <laughs> what do you want your life to be like? What do you want your relationship to be like? And that's a very hard thing for traumatized people. We're so used to underselling ourselves. We're just like, I don't know, just like a little square of the carpet under the stairs, maybe, and somebody who sticks their head in every once a day. It's like, no, 
No, what do you want? <laughs> you, you know, let it be big. Accept the fact that you, none of us always gets what we want, which is okay, but go ahead and allow yourself to want what you want and let it be as big as it needs to be. So let's say it's somebody who loves you and is committed to you and wants to stay with you forever and perhaps marries you and you wanna be married. Is that what you want? Can you be honest with yourself about it? Most people can't. They go into this weird story when I coach them about like, well, and they come up with some sort of like half-assed version of marriage that, uh, you know, well, it's a life partner. And I, and I say like, do you mean just short-term or long-term? And they go long-term and I go, so long-term or like all your life? Well, okay, all my life. I'm like, and do you share money or does one person have money and do you live together? I put all that stuff together. And, and in most cases, what people are really saying they would like is marriage. And I understand some people don't want that. It's good to be clear about that too. But if you had trauma, and in your heart of hearts, you want the one, you know, you want to find the one and be married and be safe in that marriage and have this one person who's your best friend and you share things and you stick together through thick and thin. That's a perfectly good thing to want. And it's okay to want that. If you want to have that though, you have to stop dating people and getting romantically attached to people who can never be that. And what you described is they were not ever right for that one of them if it's a like you can't have situationships you don't even get into a relationship unless it meets certain criteria for you so a situationship or friends with benefits I think that we get into that believing you know if a relationship is really what you want see again I think there's some people who are like that is all they want they want nothing more there's no pain involved in it but it, it's totally painful for you you're like totally in a state of self-attack here so it's hurting you, it's hurting you. And the thing that's hurting you is your decision to be in it. Don't worry about the other people because they're not with you anymore. If you were dating somebody right now, I would say you have to stop. You have to stop trying to control and manipulate somebody into some image you have of them that's not right. And you're not, you're not healthy enough to do that. You're not, you're not in a position to do that. Rarely, rarely is a person in a position to do that. I mean, I don't know if they have like a septic infection and you have an antibiotic IV, I'd say go right ahead. But, <laughs> but this isn't it. So somebody who doesn't want to be alive anymore is a very terrible person to get into a relationship with. And I'm not trying to beat you up or encourage you to keep beating yourself up. You know, they're vulnerable. I think you saw some of the videos I've made about people who have done that kind of gotten into a relationship with somebody who was, you know, very precarious with a grave addiction or not wanting to stay alive and getting in there and getting all involved with them and then being very upset and putting demands on them emotionally. Like, why aren't you paying attention to me? I just really want to wake anybody up who's in that situation. Like, don't do that. Don't get involved with people who are in that vulnerable place. A person in that place needs a friend. They need professional help, perhaps. But what they don't need is a relationship with somebody who doesn't know how to have boundaries and thinks they're going to save them and might run away or freak out. That could really destabilize someone in that place. And I know that because I've done that to people before and it's horrible. And I regret it, but I've dealt with my regret. I am just completely, you know, resolved and healed and amended on it now. And I hope you get to that place too. But I think part of getting to that place is you have to be able to vision, envision like, who you're becoming and who you're becoming may I suggest is somebody who doesn't have these tawdry relationships in your case with what you're going through a good period of singleness would be helpful but don't make the mistake so many people make that if you're just single for a while because that could happen whether we want it or not right 
Being single for a while solves very little. What solves it is actually undertaking a serious process of change. You could do that with a therapist. The people who I've seen get some of the best results for it um, have done stuff like Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Not all of them. The ones who seem to get, make the most progress in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous go to meetings where they will not be exposed to people they would or could ever date. You know, so it's a little, it's not a strictly gendered thing because people have different, um, you know, sexuality. But it, if you are around people where you're going to be flirting in the 12-step meeting, I guarantee you it will like completely block and halt your recovery. So what recovery is for is a process to get, get honest and serious and talk to another person like a sponsor. A sponsor is somebody who's been through this before whose life is in a better place, who will show you how they do it, right? You ask them if they will help you and they'll often have a set of tasks that they would like you to do if you want to work for them, if they say yes, like call me every day, um, work on the first step, do this writing assignment or this reading assignment. And if you really want to change, follow directions. Now each sponsor has something a little different. And um, you get to leave a sponsor if it doesn't suit you. But I've seen time and time again, I did a video about things I learned in 12-step recovery before. And, you know, it's, it's understandable to be resistant to any one sponsor that it doesn't fit you. But if you're just resistant altogether to doing what the program is, which is working the 12 steps with somebody and coming to meetings and being of service to others as you go, if you're not doing those things, it's almost certain that no progress will happen. Like if it's bad enough that you've come to a 12-step program, just do what the 12-step program is. And, you know, people out there, I, whenever I talk about 12-steps, some people go, oh, I had a terrible experience. Okay, fine. Find something different if you can. I, I know a very little. One place you can come is to my membership program. And we definitely have a lot of people who are working on changing how they have romantic relationships and who they choose and how they act in those and really working actively on the courses in my program, which cover a lot of these skills to make a change. And so it's not just it's not just about not dating. It's about really having a fundamental change so that you can see clearly what's the reality of your condition. What's really going on here? I think the self-attack that you're doing here, it's too strong. And if you're in too, it's, it's good to be self-critical. It's good to evaluate yourself. But I think that what you're, it's inaccurate to just, you know, it's, it's over dramatic, you know, the way you describe yourself, I empty myself out. No, you don't. You just give too much. You know, it's not that strong. Or what was it? I'm a terrible narcissist. I don't know about that. I loathe myself for denying him his humanity and making him into a vessel for my misguided notion of love. That's a very poetic and over-the-top way for saying, I feel ashamed of myself for not really seeing the person he is and instead, you know, kind of projecting love on him. I mean, can you hear the difference in that? Like, you're just human. You're just human and you're a traumatized human. And this is what we do. It's, it's not fun. And the fact that you're talking about it and allowing us to share your experience here on YouTube, I mean, tens of thousands of people will see this. That's a big service job you just did is to share your story for all of us. And on behalf of everyone watching, we're grateful to you because you're giving us a peek. What is it really like? And a lot of people will recognize themselves in you. And right there, you know, for you to share yourself with us like that is a great step of recovery. I thought it was interesting, this thing you did, this thing you talked about, about wanting to break people open. And you called yourself an emotional vulture. 
I immediately saw myself in him, this guy who was had trouble, and you rushed to save him, not seeing the disgusting and dehumanizing impulse that's hidden under this savior complex of mine. So in a way, I think it's a little bit telling. This thing where you think you're disgusting and dehumanizing, and that's, again, that's way too strong. So you have some very strong, like, resentment at yourself. And you're making it too strong. And actually making things very strong like that can be a mark of limerence or self-centeredness. But in your case, I just think there's some terrible pain. There are impulses hidden under the savior complex of yours. We could psychologize it, but you know what? Why not get straight to work on what you're doing? This thing where you say you're not attracted to anyone who isn't dysfunctional, that's really common. And a lot of us have like put our heads together on this. And what we think is that's shame. <laughs> There's a lot of shame there. And that's what I see in here. You just have so much shame going on here. I'm going to suggest to you that you really prioritize healing your shame. And there are some people who will say, oh, all shame is, you know, imaginary or it's put on you by society. But I don't think that's true. A serious portion of it is. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, I had shame about having puberty, you know, that's just like that. That's what I call like free floating shame. I didn't do anything wrong. Everything, in fact, was as it should be. But I had earned shame in my life. And the whenever that comes up, when I've done something that I feel was wrong, that hurt other people, that I had to deal with. And there's honor and dignity and beauty in facing when we feel we've hurt somebody and dealing with it. And how we do that is to take a little time to apologize, to figure out what did I do wrong and make a clean apology. Now, here's the trick with you, because we're talking about romantic and sexual partners. The, the, the apology, the amends I'm going to suggest to you is having no contact with these guys. No contact. There's nowhere to go here. There's no good that can come from connecting with them. You can give them a kind and polite goodbye so that you can go heal your mind. By the way, this thing where you feel they cheated on you or they were emotionally manipulative and rejecting of you, I would just say, forget about it because this is gonna be harsh and direct, but you picked them, all right? They're, you already know you have this thing. You sort of go for these broken people. So this wanting people who are messed up, it is a, it's a trauma wound that's acted out and, you, and as much as you analyze it, I'm sure you can, whatever you decide, the, the thing that matters is that you change it. And how you can change it is by having a monastic period that you work very hard on getting clear. Now, there are many good books that you could read. There are very good 12-step groups. There's the membership. There are mentors you probably know in your life, sometimes spiritual leaders. Be careful. Do not be vulnerable with spiritual leaders who are in any way trying to get from you uh, something, who are flirting with you, intriguing with you, anything like that. If you have this susceptibility around relationships, it can be very easy to get sucked in or also to get kind of um, persuaded against your better judgment into something. So this is why I love 12-step groups because they're free. There's no power struggle in there. I mean, some people, they've been there longer and some people have egos and they're proud of themselves being there longer and they might give advice or whatever, but you, nobody has to take it. Nobody can make you leave because you didn't take their advice. And so I like the cleanness of that to just start getting re-socialized about what's real and not having your whole social life. And why do I think this is the case coming from these unhealthy relationships? Well, I guess I know why the case is. It's because you want to text them all the time 
these uncertain relationships. You're, you want to keep them going and you can't think about them. And that's just a symptom of you don't have enough love in your life. You don't have enough fun and friends that you would even think about going back to these things. I think that's a lot of what limerence is. We have a predisposition from childhood, but I guarantee you, when, you're ha when you have a lot of fun people in your life and every weekend there's something to do with others that you're excited about, it takes a lot of steam out of the limerent fantasy that if you could just get back with this person and if they would just change or whatever it is, you know, and be happy, everything would be great. I can tell you've watched some of my videos and you took them very literally. So don't, don't ever do that. Take me with a grain of salt. You're good. You're a good traumatized person who's trying right now to change. So I hope you'll take my suggestion of getting real help. You need tools and you need friends who get it. Tools and friends who get it with contact with those friends and tools every day. You can get that with my daily practice and membership program or a 12-step program. And there's definitely professional help out there for this. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs in the episode description below or on my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com. If you're going through a hard time and you need online therapy, I encourage you to check out BetterHelp. They're easy and affordable and they can connect you with someone you choose within a few days. And if you use this special URL, you not only help this channel, but you get 10% off your first month of therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash ccf, as in crappy childhood fairy. That's betterhelp.com slash ccf. And remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.